0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 203. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for this episode dated February 28th, 2008. We talked to Carol Hall, which uh, many of you may know as the composer and lyricist of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. She's got a brand new CD out, and she... uh, Talks about her whole career, the making of Whorehouse, and the new CD. So uh, it's a great interview, and we hear some songs from that CD as well. We also uh, hear from the show's Life in a Marital Institution and the new Off-Off Broadway revival of Night of the Iguana. We're also going to hear a song from the new Shikaboom CD cast album Gone Missing. And we got news and a lot more. So uh, with all this on the plate, let's not uh, wait. Let's get right underway.
1: Close.
0: there are a few songwriters uh, today who have had quite as wide-spanning uh, career in such different media as songwriter Carol Hall uh, probably best known to our listeners for writing the music and lyrics for the uh, the show it's uh, the little show you might have heard of best little whorehouse in Texas but she's also done a lot of other stuff for television and film and And all around, and she's just released a CD, a collection of her songs performed by a variety of different artists, hallways, and we are so pleased to have Carol Hall here in the studio to talk about uh, the CD and her career and... Perhaps uh, share some nuggets of advice for all those people out there <laughs> working <laughs> in the the lucrative field of songwriting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing
1: great. What a gorgeous day!
0: <laughs> I know the weather has been insane. It's like flip flopping so so much here in New York. Right. So, uh, well, let's start off with uh, with um, just a little bit about your CD, and then we'll go back to it. But uh, as I mentioned, you've done a lot of stuff. So. What was the uh, impetus at this point in, in your life to finally put out a, a CD collection, collecting all your works?
1: The impetus was that my friends were nagging me. <laughs> that was <laughs> the impetus. That people had said, well, how about a CD of, of a collection of your songs, both old and new? And I, uh, I really had hesitated to do it through the years. I kind of liked being the only person in America who didn't have a CD. <laughs> I felt unique. I was the only person I knew that wasn't selling a CD. Um, But seriously, um, I think I was just shy about it. I think I was a little timid about getting everything together. And uh, there are a lot of songs that I've written that I don't sing, either because I'm not what I call a real singer, I'm a songwriter who can sing my songs, but sometimes I write things that are really too stretchy for me or too difficult for me to sing. So I knew I would have to go out and get a lot of other real singers, as I like to call them. I would have to go out and get real singers to come and help me, and uh, I guess I was putting that off. (laughs) <laughs> but then, once I started, it was truly that, you know, a monster was created. And all I thought about was the CD and what was the next song and who could I get to sing it. And in the end, I really did get some remarkable people ranging from Leslie Gore yeah. to Amanda McBroom to Stephen Lutvac to the Broadway inspirational choir. It's It's quite something. And then I sang some of them on the CD myself. But it was great fun and it became almost uh, almost meditative in the sense that whatever was happening in my life, somewhere that week I was gonna go into the recording studio with a beloved, incredible musician friend and we were gonna record. So it took a while because yeah, I was so having how, so how much long fun. Did this
0: t- how long did the project take to put together? It
1: took a long time because a friend of mine once said that when you finish making a CD you should take at least a month off and not listen to it at all. And I thought that was remarkably good advice. So when you go back and you hear it again with fresh ears, um, you see what you could tweak, what you could make better. And my friend Tex Arnold was the arranger producer. He did all the arrangements for the songs. And he was very much up for this. So after a month, he would call and say things like, well, for example, there's a song called Jenny Rebecca that a lot of people might know because, among other things, Mabel Mercer did it and Barbara Streisand did it. But Tex would call me up a month and a half after we'd recorded it, and he's a laconic fellow, uh, soft-spoken, <laughs> not many words. And he'd say, this is Tex, Jenny Rebecca. How about a cello? So, um... <laughs> Then we'd go back into the studio and add a cello on what we'd done. So I I began to almost, I don't know how to say this, I began to almost enjoy the slowness of it, to know that because I was doing it on my own, I could take the time I wanted. And uh, so that's what I did.
0: (laughs) Now, um, how? what is the... (laughs) We're all turning off our phones here. Yes. Um, so, what is the the scheduling and, and the coordination that needs to go into having you know such a, a large amount of singers you know and well known people come in to sing? Were you was this all just dealing with friends, or are you having to deal with agents and schedules and? No, it was all friends. It was all
1: friends. Everything was friends, and uh, I'd call them up and I'd say, "You want to do this?" <laughs> and I was always surprised and always incredibly grateful when they said, "Sure." And then I'd find out when we could get the studio and when we could get them, and Tex would do the arrangement, and that was it. They'd learn it, we did it. So... Now, uh,
0: as you mentioned, uh, you, you worked with uh, uh, num- numerous singers, but I, I understand your very first cut was by a young star that a few people out there <laughs> might have heard of. Uh, Barbara Streisand was the
1: your first cut as a songwriter. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Now, Mabel Mercer, who was, you know, for anybody who does not know who Mabel Mercer is, shall we say? She was yeah, the person. Well, we have
0: a, we have a, I imagine there's a few people out there who don't know on, on our program.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, very, very few. <laughs> but she is the person of whom Frank Sinatra said he learned everything he knew about phrasing from Mabel Mercer. Mm-hmm. So when I was a young sprite, uh, barely out of college, I had... <laughs> I had actually wanted to get my songs to Mabel Mercer. It seemed like a good idea to me since I thought she did songs that I liked. So maybe she'd do mine. So she had, in fact, um, done three of my songs. And I've often wondered if Barbara Streisand heard her do it. I've never been sure how she found Jenny Rebecca.
0: Oh, it, so it wasn't like a, uh, a real... You know, arduous pitch process? she just all of a sudden No,
1: said, she used to get in touch with young writers. Actually, Barbara was playing a club and asked all of the young writers in New York to come and hear her. I don't even remember the name of the club. Uh, but I remember being with my friends, the other writers, and that we all went to see her. She wasn't glamorous yet. She was quirky, but she wasn't glamorous, but she was fantastic. And just beginning. So I thought that was very clever of her to have called around and asked us over. And I guess I sent her Jenny Rebecca. But I've always thought also she might have heard it from Mabel Mercer. The funny thing, if I may just tell a little story yes, about of Mabel course. Mercer <laughs> Mabel Mercer, being the doyen of song, uh, was working in a small, dark club. And I didn't know how to reach her, I didn't know how to find her. So it seemed to me, I'm I had just graduated from college outside of New York, but I was still at heart a very simple Texas girl. So I just looked up Mabel Mercer in the phone book, and she was in the M's, so I called her. And (laughs) at that time, I must say I had kind of an accent. I did, which, of course— you'll notice I've totally lost. But I remember saying something along the lines of, Miss Mercer, this is Carol Hall and I'm a songwriter. <laughs> and I was and she was very gracious and she said, that's nice, dear. <laughs> and I, loud as how, I had these songs, and I wanted her to hear them. And she said, well, you can drop them by my house and leave them with the doorman. Wow, that wouldn't happen today. I know. I know. <laughs> so I did that, and that was on Monday. And by Friday, I was a little offended that she hadn't called me up. <laughs> so I called her again. And I said, Miss Mercer, this is Carol Hall. Now, what about those songs? I dropped them off on Monday. And she really did say... They were lovely, dear, and I'm learning Jenny Rebecca. So, see, that's how I knew that songwriting was such a simple thing to do that I would have to go into the business (laughs) at once. You just called up the person after you found them in the phone book, and they did your song.
0: <laughs> well, so. maybe this is a good time to let our listeners hear one of the songs from your CD, Hallways. Okay. Um, maybe we'll play a, "I'll Imagine You a Song." Is that sure. Do you, yes. Anything you want? To, a story behind yes. this? When you want to yes.
1: tell? Yes. Uh, this is sung by my dear friend Stephen Lotvac, who is an extraordinary writer, and he writes music and lyrics. I write music and lyrics, but in this case, we decided to collaborate, and I wrote the lyric, and he did the music and uh, it's a joy to me to hear him sing it because he's a wonderful singer as well as a wonderful writer. And to tell you the truth, when I wrote this lyric, uh, the person who was on my mind was Nancy Lamott, who had just died. And I was trying to, she was not a close friend, but I was trying to make some kind of sense for myself uh, about the loss of someone so young and so talented. And uh, So I wrote the lyric, and I called up Stephen and asked him if he wanted to set it, and he did. So it's called I'll Imagine You a Song.
0: All right, let's take a listen. And if I
3: believed in heaven, I'd believe that now you're
1: singing
3: in the choir. And if I believed in angels, I'd imagine you in white and quite the fly. And if I believed in reasons Then I wouldn't ask why dying seems so wrong But I just believe in music So I guess that I'll imagine you A song If I'd read up on Einstein I would think the world Is rational and right And if I put faith in logic I suppose that I might Someday see the light You are gone now And I miss you People tell me time will heal And I'll feel strong But I just believe in So I guess that I'll imagine you a song I'll imagine you a song And it will lead me like a friend And it will reach inside and linger in my ear I'll imagine you a song Because the music has no end And what that means is you'll forever be right I a time for magic I might think we' all get put here in a spell just to weave things into wonders and to live and love and try to do it well and if I believed in questions then my answers wouldn't have to take so long but I just believe in me So I guess that I'll imagine you a song I'll imagine you a song And it will take me by the hand And it will stay inside my soul and set me free I'll imagine you a song Until I finally understand That what that means Is you are always part of me Measures all we ever have is what we learn to give. And if we're wise, we look for treasures every single breathing moment that we live. And if I believed in endings, then I never would have loved you for this long, but I just believe in music, 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 so I guess that I'll imagine you
0: So that was from the CD Hallways. That was
1: from the CD.
0: Yes. Uh, released by LML Music, and uh, so let's kind of shift from that for a moment. Your your project to uh, to the, the a little bit of the story behind uh, your big success with uh, this little whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> okay. And uh, well, first, of all, what was all the idea behind it? How did it come to creation? How did you get involved on it? And you know what was kind of the the quick like little history of how it made its way to becoming a, you know, running five years on Broadway.
1: I am so thrilled you asked me that. I really love to tell the story. The original title, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, belonged to a journalist named Larry L. King. Not Larry King, the TV Larry King, but the journalist Larry King, Larry L. King. He had written a journalistic account that was in Playboy magazine. He called it The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It was about the true life closing down of a bordello that had run for over 100 years in Texas. Now, may I just say at this time that that was longer than I believe the Rockettes have been working? So, <laughs> uh, So we all knew about this place called the Chicken Ranch, which is very strange to me because I'm pretty sure nobody in my family told me. <laughs> but you just grew up in Texas. It was in the ether. It was in the atmosphere. You knew about the chicken ranch. So I was a friend of Larry L. King's. I was a huge fan of his. I had read every single thing he'd ever written except this article in Playboy. Because I, you know. Really? I, it wasn't on
0: the top of your stack? And <laughs> it wasn't on the top of my stack.
1: <laughs> now, I had another friend, two friends from Texas, Pete Masterson and his wife, Carlin Glenn. We'd done summer stock together in Texas, and we'd come to New York at about the same time. And we all went one night to see a play by another Texan. This is the Texas Mafia
4: here.
1: <laughs> and the other Texans named Jack Hefner. And he had written a play that had run a long time off-Broadway called Vanities about... Texas Cheerleaders.
0: Yeah, and that's actually heading to Broadway uh, it next is. year. It's going to be a
1: musical. Yes. And I'm. It's David Kirshenbaum's
0: been in here a few times. Has he? Shows,
1: yes. Yeah. It's very exciting to me because I have such a fond spot in my heart for it. I did not at that time know Jack Hefner, who has now become a dear friend. Um, but at dinner afterwards, Pete and Carlin and I were talking about vanities. And I said, you all, that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to write a musical, this was not a musical, but I wanted to write a musical about Texas that was authentically Texas, that was not, you know, if I say fingers in the suspenders, it just wasn't, it it wasn't fingers in the suspenders kind of Texans, you know, <laughs> yeehaw this and, you know, cornpone that. I wanted to write something as true as Jack Hefner had written, but with songs. And I suggested to Pete that I'd had this idea of The Last Picture Show, maybe The Last Picture Show would be a great musical. Now, we were all young and pretty much unknown, or, well, kind of like totally unknown, actually, but making our way as, as writers, and Pete and Carlin were actors. And I said, uh, so what do you think about the idea of The Last Picture Show being a musical? And Pete said, I think it's a good idea that you can't get the rights for. But I have a better idea that maybe we could get the rights for. It's this article in Playboy magazine. And did you say, you have a Playboy? (laughs) No, I didn't. But it was funny. The next morning, Pete delivered this article to me. And I read it, and I thought he was right. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I called up Larry King, who was a journalist working in Washington, still lives in Washington. He had worked with LBJ, he had worked with a number of Texas congressmen, he'd been up for a a national book award for a journalistic account of racism in this country. I mean, this was very unusual to be calling him up about a musical. And I asked him if he'd be interested in working with Pete and me, and what Larry said was this, musicals, hell no, I seen (laughs) me a musical once, ain't nothing in it, but tippy toed tap dancers stomping all over the dialogue, (laughs) which, of course, is probably kind of true, you know, when I think about it. Anyway, I thought that was funny, and I said, so you wouldn't really be that interested, and he said, well, I'll meet with y'all, and you can do what you want to. So he did meet with us, and Pete and Carlin were in actor's studio, and we asked Larry to do one thing. We asked him to remember, because he seemed to have had access to the rules at the bordello, which were posted. The rules of um, Miss Edna was the name of the real life madam. The rules of the house were posted on the refrigerator. And Larry had had access to those rules. And so we asked him to write them down as he remembered them. And what he did instead was to write a long, rambling, screamingly funny opening scene. And he sent it to me, and this was in the old days when you didn't email people. He sent it to me written out on legal paper with a little note at the top that said, Is this all there is to write in a musical? Hell, this is easy. (laughs) And it was just a big old mess, but it was very funny. And so Pete came over and edited it and tidied it up and added. There was one girl being interviewed, and sometimes the questions had to do with innocent. Answers and sometimes the questions brought street-savvy answers from her. And it was Pete who would say things like, can't we just make it two girls being interviewed? One of them's street smart, one of them's innocent. So he was really an extraordinary editor. And they, Pete and Carlin, were members of Actors Studio. So he said, why don't we just go over there and read it? Well, I maintain till this day that the brilliance of Pete was that we went to the acting unit. Because if we'd gone to the writing unit, I have a feeling we would have still been discussing the second act. <laughs> uh, but those actors jumped out of their seats and they were just saying, Can I be in your show? Can I be in your show? So we did it at Actor Studio for free. And word got around. And uh, producers actually did arrive in limos outside. Actor mm-hmm. Studio, and it went from there. You know, we fielded offers. I believe that's the that's the line in Tutsi, isn't it? When the agent says, "I'm fielding mm-hmm. offers," we were fielding offers. So,
0: so, how long was it from that inception? You know, starting to write it to it finally reaching very Broadway. Very fast. Very
1: fast. I would say that it took us less than a year. Wow. To finish it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the, from I mean, to mount it, getting it mounted on mm-hmm, Broadway. Because what they oh. did
1: was very interesting. We were the first musical. To be produced by a movie company, which of course now is so common. Mm-hmm. And like yawn now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that well, was way. very interesting. A lot of people. <laughs> I remember there was a very, very famous, a legendary Broadway producer who called me up and said, "This won't work. This won't work because you've got." <laughs> we had a lot of people in the cast. She said something like, "I, you have, you know." Twenty-nine people in your cast, and they're not going to be able to make their nut, and, you know, it's just not going to work. It's You can't open off-Broadway, which was what Universal Pictures had decided to do. They said, we'll mount it as if it were a Broadway production, but we'll open it downtown. So this legendary producer was saying, they can't make their money, because apparently she hadn't thought of the fact that they didn't care if they didn't make their money downtown. Basically, they'd gotten a free movie, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they were giving us a show downtown that if it went well, they would move to Broadway. But it wasn't going to be Chorus Line, which opens by itself. And then then they feel the offers and have and the movie people had to pay a lot of money to get Chorus Line. Because it had not been connected to a movie before it opened. Am, am I being yes, clear? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, we gave him a real economical movie, but uh, that's how it happened. Isn't that a funny story?
0: Yes, and uh, <laughs> I have to say, when did you, when Dolly Parton, when you found that Dolly Parton was going to be in the movie, how, did that was that right away, or were you no, thrilled? No, that, that
1: was later. We we opened.
0: I mean, I imagine, uh, you know, coming moved. from the South, in mm-hmm. your legend that I, I imagine you had to have been very excited that
1: I was such a legendary
0: excited. performer was coming in on the
1: Yes. Well, really, it went like this. We opened off-Broadway. We got extraordinary uh, reviews, and we moved uptown. So that was kind of the first thing. Then Universal began talking about casting. And Dolly mixed emotions. I'm a huge fan of Dolly. Huge, huge, huge fan of Dolly as a writer. So I knew that you don't put Dolly in a movie without thinking maybe you're going to have somebody writing songs okay, with yeah, you yeah. in that movie. Uh, so that was mixed emotions. And uh, honestly, I wanted Shirley MacLaine. Well, and was... I knew that she was interested in it. So.
0: That would have but been would very have interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I know you, uh, in this political climate, you really suggested that you wanted to... Uh, Retouch people with a certain song from Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> and I believe not the, Little
4: Shop of Horrors.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the best what Little Shop the best,
0: of the best Little <laughs> Shop of Texas Horrors.
1: <laughs> well, we all know what you mean, Michael.
5: And uh,
1: yes, it's from the best Little whorehouse in Texas, and it is the moment when the the governor of Texas is answering questions from journalists. And I I, I did think maybe we could hear that today, just in honor of this extraordinary political race we're having.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well and uh, and for the Charles Durning did this role in the movie and was nominated for an Oscar wasn't he? He was. Yes.
1: He was. I like to think maybe the song had a little something to do with it. Yeah.
0: Well, Let's take a listen to sides. Okay. Who's the performer Jay on
1: this? Jay Garner. Jay Garner, who was I believe nominated for a Tony for this.
0: Mm. All right. <laughs> listen.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, His Excellency, the governor. Of friends, I want to thank you for that warm and sincere Christian welcome. Gentlemen, you may ask your questions now. What about the chicken ranch, Governor? Fellow Texans, I'm proudly standing here to humbly say I assure you, and I mean, now who says I don't speak out as plain as day? And fella Texans, I'm for progress. And the flag, long may it fly. I'm a poor boy, come to greatness. So it follows that I cannot tell a lie. What the hell did he say? Marisy-dotes, dozy dotes Little lambsy died Ooh, I love to dance the little sidestep Now they see me, now they don't, I've come at all And ooh, I love to sweep around wide step Cut a little swath and lead the people all. Governor, how do you account for the current high rate of unemployment in our state? Nothing unusual about it! Oh, well, it's just the natural law of economics Now, the real cause of this unemployment thing is that people are out of work.
5: Governor, are you taking action against the chicken ranch?
6: Now, my good friends, it behooves me to be solemn and declare I'm for goodness and for profit. And for living clean and saying daily prayer And now, my good friends Oh, you can sleep nights I'll continue to stand tall You can trust me For I promise I shall keep a watchful eye upon y'all This is all
3: going over my head
6: You and Will Chamber. I love to dance the little sidestep Now they see me, now they don't I've come and gone And ooh, I love to sweep around wide step Cut a little swath and lead the people on Ranch operation been ignored so long? Uh, Big part, sir, is it true that organized crime may be involved? Uh, There's some acoustic problems in here. Aren't you worried about possible payoffs and crimes out there? Governor, what are you prepared to do about Miss Mona and the Chicken Ranch? Now, Miss Mona, I don't know her, though I've heard the name. Oh, yes. But of course I've. No close contact so what she is doing i can only guess but oh miss pona she's a blemish on the face of that good town i am taking certain steps here someone somewhere's gonna have to close her down <laughs>
0: So you've conquered, you know, the Broadway stage with uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. But uh, I also see in your bio that you've done a lot of television writing that uh, people recognized, including a, a little show that I've, I think everybody in my age range has been
1: influenced by, Sesame Street. Sesame Street, yes. I've done a lot of writing for children. I wrote for 10 years for Sesame Street. And then i the thing I'm actually proudest of than anything else in my life is... Uh, a show that was called Free to Be You and Me, um, written by a bunch of good writers, actually. Sheldon Harnick, uh, Mary Rogers, me, uh, Roberta Flack. I mean, just an extraordinary bunch of writers. And that was a book and a record and a television show and, and influenced a lot of a lot of people.
0: I <laughs> guess it did. So how did, you get, how did you start making these connections and decide to start writing for, for children and, and doing these projects?
1: Well, if you count Jenny Rebecca as a song for a child that got born, in a strange way, I think I'd written songs related to children for a long time. Um, when I started writing, when I was in high school, um, I, think I, I think the first show that I decided to write was The Nightingale. I'm, I did my own Little book, music and lyrics, when I was in junior high, actually, of the Nightingale. So maybe it's the simplicity of the form. I don't know, but uh, it wasn't big business then. I know that. I remember. I remember someone in New York saying to me, "Maybe you'll get over all this writing for children thing and get back to the, the grown-up songs." <laughs> so now, now we have Disney.
0: Yeah, Disney's certainly taken over. Uh, Disney has us.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so how did it happen? Um, I By this time, I had an agent, and uh, he had a connection with Sesame Street. But th- it was tough getting past those gates. It was really like, you know, slay three dragons and, you know, ride on spec and that sort of thing. But it was very, very magical just to go over there and see the filming, and to have a, have written a song for Big Bird and to, to watch the recording of it, it was magical.
0: And Allison, another show that a lot of theater people out there are probably familiar with, I know it gets performed a lot that you contributed to, is A, My Name is Alice. Yes, yes. So yes. What, was that, what was kind of the, the process behind that?
1: I think everything in my life has come from <laughs> friends. I really do. I'd, I had made friends with Joan Micklin Silver. Whose concept it was. And she called up her friends. (laughs) And we came over and talked about things that had to do at that point in time, which was the mid 70s, late 70s, I guess, by then, uh, issues that had to do with women at that time. And um, she asked me to uh, do something. Actually, I had written a musical with a woman named Susan Rice. And it took place in the world of sports. It never got actually on we've often said it was workshopped so many times this musical that if it ever does get on they're going to think it's a revival <laughs> but uh i still love it it was called good sports and in it we had a song uh sung by a women's basketball team so uh, yes that's that's how it happened that Joan said how about some how about a song about women in sports
0: so as you keep working in, in, in various different fields, what, what's next on the plate for you? Or, or what are some of the things that you, or, or what are some of the goals that you have yet to accomplish that you oh, still would like you. to go for? Oh,
1: thank you, thank um, you. I've just finished doing a really interesting thing. There's a wonderful young theater called Prospect Theater.
0: Yes, we've, we've had them here a couple have you? yeah.
1: They're great, and they like to, as I call it, they like to play. Creatively. And they have just asked about a month ago, because it, it was in January, they asked eight teams of writers to pick a piece of artwork that was presently on display in New York City and write a 15 minute musical inspired by that artwork. And we have two more performances. We've had two this week, and we've got one tonight and one tomorrow night at, um, gosh, I I, it's the West-something Theater. It's on, mm-hmm. I don't know the name of it. It's on 86th Street. Well, listeners have
0: missed it by the time it's <laughs> goes Oh,
1: oh okay. I won't worry about too. it. I won't worry about it. Anyway, uh, I really loved this because we wrote it fast. None of the teams knew what the other teams were doing. And Prospect Theater gave us the cast, and they just learned it literally in, in three or four rehearsals. And I like that feeling. So I think what I'd like to do is some more of that. I'd like to set myself quick assignments. And uh, this was a small play. Small in the sense that it's 15 minutes long. um, Small play with three songs in it. And it strikes me as something that has some real possibilities for maybe me doing some more and making a clump. (laughs) A clump of these. So we'll see. It was fun, though. It was really like... Playing, writing something just because it seemed like fun. You know, I have a theory that um, the less money you can work for, the the greater artist you are. So uh, this was for for free. I'm I'm
0: I'm like Picasso. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm. You know, I surely you picked up on the irony there. But uh, yeah, if you can write for free, I figure well that really means I'm a big old artist. But it has been great fun. Great fun.
0: All right, well, I thank you so much for coming to the studio and and sharing all your wonderful stories with uh, with our listeners. And I want to remind everybody that the hallway CD is coming out March 11th. Yes. Um, Everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we'll close this out with one last song from the the CD. Uh, This is Tattooed Boy in Memphis.
1: The Tattooed Boy in Memphis. And it's sung by Amanda McBroom, and I did the music and lyrics. Don't ask me if there is a tattooed boy in Memphis, because there is.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, best of luck in all your future endeavors.
1: Thank you.
2: I met a tattooed boy in Memphis, and he touched my very soul. When his eyes lit up like Christmas, and he talked about rock and roll. I met a tattooed boy in Memphis, never did catch his name. Sometimes I think of him Saw a homeless woman walking With an old dog in her cart The two of them kept rolling on The ache stayed in my heart Saw a homeless woman walking Never did catch her name Sometimes I think of her. The truth is that we never really know the ways we reach each other. Though we think we see it, there's a world we never find. The truth is that we never can be sure of how we teach each other. Life is full of changes and the touch of passing strangers. And it's all just like a ribbon we un. I did. I tried so hard to find the words. They all ran off and hid. I remember that I loved you. You will never call my name. Sometimes I think of that. The truth is that we never really know the ways we reach each other, though we think we see it. There's a world we never find The truth is that we never can be sure Of how we teach each other Life is full of changes And the touch of passing strangers And it's all just like a ribbon We are
0: The New York Public Library for the Performing Arts delves into its renowned collections for Writing to Characters, Songwriters, and the Tony Awards, the first exhibition to explore over 70 Broadway shows that have won Tonys for either Best Musical or Best Score. In conjunction with the exhibition, the library also presents a free public program series featuring appearances by such noted songwriters as Charles Strauss, Maury Yeston, and Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. Writing a character co-presented by the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts and Tony Award Productions is on view from February 26th through June 14th, 2008 in the library's Vincent Astor Gallery. Admission is free. The New York Public Library for the Performing Arts Dorothy and Louis B. Coleman Center is located at 40 Lincoln Center Plaza. MCC Theatre is pleased to announce another all-star lineup for the company's annual gala to be held Monday, March 10, 2008 at the Hammerstein Ballroom. As in years past, Miss Cast 2008 will bring together the best and brightest Broadway talents as they perform songs from roles in which they would never be cast. Lynn Redgrave, currently in MCC's production of Grace, will serve as the evening's honorary chair. Broadway's Phil Renault provides musical direction. MCC has announced that there are a limited number of show-only tickets now available for $50. All proceeds go directly to MCC's production, play development, education, and outreach programs. And in casting notices, Carrie Ellis, currently starring as Linda's Alphaba in Wicked, is to recreate her award-winning performance on Broadway. Carrie will play her final performance in London on June 7, 2008 before beginning performances at Broadway's Gershwin Theatre on June 17, 2008. Following her Broadway engagement, Carrie will return to the London production at the end of the year. And on Tuesday, March 18th, 2008, Broadway's razzle-dazzle hit musical Chicago is pleased to welcome Kesea Lewis Evans as matron Mama Morton for an 11-week engagement through Sunday, June 1st at Broadway's Ambassador Theater. Also on Tuesday, March 18th, Broadway veteran Jeff McCarthy will begin 11-week return engagement as slick criminal lawyer Billy Flynn. And I have to say, I'm kind of glad to see the producers of Chicago bringing in some theater people and, uh not just all the the film people. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Arias Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. Also, if you are looking or know somebody who's looking for recording services, I do offer great recording services and, again, in a very convenient location. I work with not only theater, but a a variety of R&B, pop, rock, singer-songwriter styles, I definitely do specialize in working with uh, solo performers who need me to gather together the right musicians and arrangements to make their dreams come true on recording. If you know of anybody, feel free to give me a buzz at 646-345-3433 or drop me an email at info at broadwaybullet.com.
1: On the boards.
0: People refer to marriage quite frequently as an institution. But uh, exactly what type of institution and how frequently you enter it, I believe, is the subject of Life in a Marital Institution, which is uh, written by and starring James Braley. Is that Braley? Brawley. Brawley. Sorry. It's okay. It's like a bra uh, with an L-Y. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad to have you here with us today.
7: I hear that uh, the Times Review came out today, and you haven't read it. The Times Review did come out. Evidently, it's very, uh, it's very positive. Now, uh, entering into a, uh, you know, I entered into a relationship with, of trust, which is very unusual for me, with the, uh, with the theater director, Hal Brooks, who's fantastic. And he said, trust me, it's a good review, but don't read it because I don't want you to go to the place where one goes when one gets a good review. So I got to trust him. We've trusted him all the way. uh, What is that egomania?
0: Egomaniac? Uh, An egomaniac who you know wants people to hold open doors for them
7: and. uh... Uh, Well, part part of of it. Well, that no, I'm already there. (laughs) No, actually, I was just saying the other day how it's good that I lost my mind as a teenager because otherwise, you know, my laundry is being done now, and had I not already lost my mind, I'd be losing it now. But now, I just when I see people actually doing my laundry because that's what happens. You know, when that's part of your costume. Uh, you, you, you don't suffer those kind of breakdowns no the, the fear in reading the review is that you encase the uh, aspects of the performance that are noted in the review in amber and then you trot those out each night mm-hmm. uh, which then kills the performance yeah. and off you go and you're dead so it's a it's a life killing uh, you know the great irony is it's yeah hey, isn't this good and then it, but it kills you if, you if you listen to it too soon you know, because what makes it work is that you're just there So is this a massive
0: case of willpower you having to resist the review? Unbelievable.
7: I mean, it's not. It's like how you know. It's it's not only is it not every day. It's one day in your life that you get reviewed in the Times for the first time, and that day is today. So, and I have the print copy right over there on your couch, uh, and I've I just I've not opened the arts page. And I did not click through last night at, you know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, when I was up, I was like, yes, there it is. And then and I got the, uh, the countervailing, you know, weigh-ins from the producer and the director saying, don't, don't. So, you know, uh, you got you to ride the horses that, uh, that got you here. And, uh, and they, are, they are the horses. <laughs> All right, so uh
0: tell us a little bit about what uh life in a marital institution and and I guess you know this is a whole big loaded question because there's a lot a like, lot that goes into this i i assume
7: mm. well it is <clears throat> there's a couple of we- of marriages that are uh, featured in the show it's it's a monologue, and the spine of the monologue is a uh a reunion of sorts in a hospice, <laughs> not the subject for high comedy typically, <laughs> but the the theme, the tone of this show, of this monologue is its tragedy delivered as full on comedy. It is the blackest, darkest, most compressed tragedy uh, one would ever hope to happen. You know, somebody's dying. This is somebody's on their deathbed in a hospice, but uh, it's delivered straight as as humor <clears throat> and. At that hospice setting, uh, my family comes together, um, not having seen each other in a long, long time for all of the reasons that become evident in the monologue. They sue each other. They threaten to kill each other, et cetera. And, uh, and that becomes the point of departure for uh, – you know, the, the initial point of departure in the show is uh, I'm sitting with my sister and, and you know, we're crying and blah, blah, blah. And, she say, and I t- I'm telling her that I love her and she says, well, you know, do you love me enough to trade places? And, you know, and I love her more than anybody I've ever known, except for my my boys and uh, and my wife. And uh, I say, and my wife is named Susan, and I say, well, yeah, I don't know what to say, really. And then I say, well... Would you want to be married to Susan <laughs> and that and it starts this sort of departure Are you in... still married to Susan? Yes,
0: she's got to have an extraordinary sense of humor to be dealing with all this right uh, now. <laughs> well I
7: don't know if I go that far it's a it's a, it's a very complicated relationship and uh, and I can't reveal the denouement uh, right now for a variety of reasons but but the you – know, when you've been together we've, – we've crossed over. Whatever it is we are or are not to each other, we have we, – what we will always be is family because we've been – you know, we, we've known each other for 25 years, 24 years since college. So she's crossed over into that realm where <clears throat> good days or bad days notwithstanding is just they're your family. And uh, so the show is about having, you know, thinking that you're going to. You know, I, I grew up in this sort of noisy, insane bedlam, and thinking you know, that I'd gotten out of it uh, by, you know, through this woman, through this relationship, only to find that I'd created a new bedlam, and uh, which is just as noisy and just as insane in a different way as as the one that I came from. And I'm in the I'm in the hospice, and then I'm I'm out into. A place where people believe in leprechauns, or they eat their babies' placentas. <laughs> These are all. This is this is nonfiction. It's an autobiography. It's a memoir, or they're risking their kids' lives having home births in their apartment on Central Park West, or whatever. And you're, yeah. you're going in and out and in and out and, in and out, and then finally the worlds sort of collide at the end. Um, and uh, in a partly in a, in a deathbed wedding, my sister gets married, which is the 14th marriage. Uh, in, the, in, a, in a rather small family she 's married on her deathbed and uh, so that 's a little bit about what it's it''s it's, it's black it 's savage uh, and it's and I think it 's funny it 's very very funny. Do people laugh when you 're performing yeah okay that 's probably a good indication yeah. <laughs> You never know as I said at the outset of the show you never I take nothing for granted i don 't assume anything. So uh, now, now the, there is a range. It's interesting, you know. There's a range of responses. Uh, on my opening night, half of the people who were there had seen the show in an earlier incarnation. So the novelty of hearing a sh- of hearing a segment about placenta eaters, for example, mm-hmm. uh, had uh, evaporated. Uh, yeah, once he w- he you to hear about placenta eaters once, yeah, so it's, it's you know, it, that's ex- you know, Where can you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep going back to the placenta. Well, so uh, so they, but what they were was totally engaged, and that's that is a. It sort of brought me back. This is one thing I've been saying to myself for years and years. Uh, I was a huge fan of, of Spalding Gray, which is how I got it. You know, who was a really just a fantastic monologist, and that's how I got into this. Work to begin with. I saw him years ago, and I thought that's what I want to do. And I ended up studying with him. And and uh, and my recollection of having seen him was I rarely laughed when I saw his work, but I was always fully engaged. And uh, given that I oftentimes I'm a cerebral or abstract type of person, it's I go to this sort of inner laugh zone, and uh, and I'm internally amused uh, at what I was seeing and what I was hearing, and that's. I think what's happening on some nights with the audience—it's you know—you can tell they're engaged—is is really the bottom line, and, that, and that's really all you can ask from a theatrical experience, from a performer/slash writer standpoint, is that people are with you and they're going with you, and they may be going in in a different way, but they're going with you.
0: Now, I understand that a uh, marriage counseling plays a a large part
7: in the the show here. <laughs> well, there there is a uh, uh, one of the. Uh, uh, scenes of the show, of the monologue uh, is uh, the trip to our first of thirteen marriage counselors, uh, first of thirteen couples counselors. that's not many. You know, most people try many more. That, well, <laughs> you know, it's uh, you, you. Uh, I am nothing if not tenacious and persistent. Now, some of those... What happens there? You go, oh,
0: she's totally on your side, honey, and then she, then you go to the next one, and she's like, oh, this one just sees
7: it your side. <laughs> well, in the, well, in the case of this one, this one said, I can't help you. <laughs> she fired us. I'm not on either of your side. That you doesn't two, sound good getting fired. It by doesn't sound someplace. good. No, no. You look at it, you think, well, you know, if we are taking, the, if, if we connect ourselves to this feedback loop, we are being told <laughs> to break up with each other, but we ignored the signs. In the cases of some other ones, uh, yes, one of them said, you know, I like him better than I like you. And, uh, and another one ended up in an argument with my wife in front of me, and I had to counsel them. <laughs> Susan, what Brett is trying to say, Brett, what Susan is trying to say, to bring them to some rapprochement that I was paying $200 an hour for to facilitate, which is when I realized he was even more insane than we were. And, uh, and that was the end of that relationship. Uh, so, you know, it's an unlicensed profession, for better and for worse. You could be a marriage counselor. Uh, <laughs> I could be a marriage counselor, and in fact have been. So, and some marriage counselors have you come know, to I, the I, show. I'm from Montana. You know, we're like, counselors, hooey.
0: <laughs> you just suck your, you suck your gut in and go through it. You suck it out. Yeah, <laughs>
7: yeah. That's why I'm from Colorado. So I know the ethos. <laughs> I know the ethos well. You're even crazier in Montana. <laughs> Less reflective. So what what drove you to put this show together? Uh, How long has this
0: been in development? Uh, What was the spark that said, yes, I want to write about all
7: of this? Well, um, I had been writing industrials. Uh, corporate communications. That didn't
0: uh, satisfy you creatively?
7: It's You know, in some ways, yeah. it's not everybody who gets to write the launch for Viagra and Levitra. And by the way, you, you've heard it here for the first time. I the, love that work. The theme of Levitra <laughs> is the same as the theme of Barack Obama's campaign. He ripped it off. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary hasn't gotten a hold of this yet, but if she does, you know, the theme of the Vitra launch was it's, fired up. It's going
0: to be performed 100 years from now. <laughs> yeah. <It's,
7: laughs> so I was doing that, and, you know, and I used to play pop songs, and and, uh, and I, I used to have an office down in Soho with uh, a recording studio on one wall, kind of like what you've got here, and a writing desk on the other, only I had a wood floor with a rolling chair. And I could go back and forth between the two sides of the room, depending on whether I was feeling musical or writerly. And had you been a pigeon on the ledge of my office, you would have realized I was having a nervous breakdown. (laughs) I was going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I said, this is insane. I've got to stay on one side of the office. And I did this list of like, what do I really, what do I do for free? Not what do I want to do? What do I do for free? And what I did for free was watch Seinfeld and tell stories. And you couldn't make a living watching Seinfeld. No, but I started to write, (laughs) and I lived in Seinfeld's building, and I started to write a spec script uh, uh, that became my project. I thought, you know, I've got to get – sold my recording studio, just shifted my life overnight, wrote the spec script, and that began uh, a metamorphosis from music into uh, uh, storytelling and writing. I dropped the Seinfeld thing after a while because I didn't have the nerve to actually give it to him in in the elevator and violate the neighbor-neighbor privacy. I was going to lower it on a fish hook down uh, into his window. because See, lived. that's the
0: difference again between Montana and New York. In Montana, they're your neighbor. It's like, hey, yeah, check yeah. this out.
7: Yeah, but that's- Come but, to my barbecue. But the conceit, you know, the, the conceit in Seinfeld is yeah. that he hates everybody except you, the viewer, and George and, and Elaine and Kramer. When you actually live in this building, you realize that's no conceit. <laughs> the guy does not want to talk to you in that elevator on the way up. I used to go just, to the roof just so I could ride with him all 15 floors and maybe he'd change my life but no he would retire into the corner under his NBC hat uh, so, but it, so I started to, to uh, write story a friend of mine said you know what write about what pisses you off well I was pissed off by a lot of what was going on in my marriage and when you're in Uh, You can go to a psychiatrist, for example, and be pissed off about all the same stuff. But it's not not fun to listen to, which is why you have to pay the psychiatrist. (laughs) And if you want people to listen to it, you have to switch – you have to reverse the polarity. So instead of she won't do the fucking dishes, it's I'm choosing a woman who does not do dishes. Why is that? And, uh, why, you know, why, and And she eats placentas. I'm choosing a woman who eats placentas. <laughs> why is that? And on and on. So you're a chooser. You're a protagonist in your own story. And I thought that by writing it in that way, I'd figure out why I had chosen chaos. Complete and total mind-numbing. Ultimately, this is the reason I, I chose it. I realized why I chose that to a certain degree. Because if you're in chaos all the time, there's no time for anything else. You're just you're resting. You're recovering. And then you're battling and, and then you're almost dying and prevailing or losing and then recovering and then battling. It's this cycle. Uh, so. How many
0: friends call you a drama queen?
7: Uh well <laughs> are you my friend? <laughs> I got to do the math. Uh, so we all live in different ways. That was a that was a way that I lived and uh, and so I uh, so I started telling these stories and I did it at The Moth, you know, which is a fantastic storytelling organization downtown. Themoth.com has more information on that. And you can do it only 5 or 15 minutes at a time depending on what level you're at. Uh, down there and it uh, started to become evident to me I'd, you know, I, have, I have more than I can communicate in 5 minutes or 15 minutes I need to do a show and uh, and that's when I put it together started to put it together and, and then pulled in some other people when I sort of hit walls notably Hal Brooks
0: so how, what was the how long did it take for you to find a producer to get this going
7: um <clears throat> Well, I, you know, i had been telling parts of the show I told, uh, I performed uh, as far back as four or five years ago. Uh, you know, the show's gone through many permutations. Uh, to, uh, in March of 2006, or I, I guess it was uh, uh, the fall of 2005, I told the hospice story at the Moth on the main stage. That became the spine of the show. And... Uh, Anna Becker a pro- uh, the show's producer came up to me after that I'd never met her in my life and she said that you know, she really liked it do you have a show and I said oh yes of course I have a show <laughs> not having a show but although I did I had booked a show I just hadn't put the show together at that point she said oh okay great well why don't you do it for me as well uh, in May of 2006 I did it in March of 2006 the first time I'd ever done it at Dixon Place a little theater in the, in the Lower East Side and and um, uh, you know lights go up, and it was it was it was one night. Everybody I ever knew you know was there uh, and some people i didn 't know and It was a great night for me and The next day, I got an instant message from one of the people uh, who was there, saying, "Do you have a phone number and uh, And I thought you know mm-hmm. one often is given to sort of f- exotic fantasies, as you probably <laughs> gather. They rarely Steven come Spielberg, exactly, <laughs> and they rarely come true. But this one seemed to be grounded in something real, and so I said to myself, "Slow down, James. This is a good instant message, man. Sit at your chair and look out, because I think something good is about to happen." And I, I, instant messaged my telephone number, and he called back, and he said, about fifteen or thirty seconds into the call, basically the gist of the call was, you know, I've seen. Spalding Gray, I've seen Eric Bogosian, I've you know I've seen the monologuists, and I think you're good. I would like to back your show, and that's how it happened. It was the it was the day after this little gig. Uh, it was shocking <clears throat> and uh, disorienting, and it changed things uh, profoundly, especially when I got uh, an email the next morning from from him with the subject line. Don't fuck up. <laughs> and nothing in the body of the email. That's twice. Right
0: before this interview, you told me you never swear. I don't. I don't. But, I, but, that's, but that's just
7: verbatim. That's verbatim. I'm just reporting. Uh, and, and that was the subject line. So, uh, so he, he weighed in. That's, he became you know, the, the executive producer of the show. And, uh, and then the search for the, you know, the rest of the creative team and the development process began, so, which was very, very arduous. I have to say. It was much more, seemed like it would be an easy thing, but it was not an easy thing. Friendships went by the wayside. You know, it was very, it was brutal. <laughs> uh, but it's been worth it. So. And now you're at the 59 East 59 Street Theater. Fifty nine E fifty nine theater. Yeah, I can always say street, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. Fifty nine E fifty nine is there, which uh, is on East 59th, and
0: <laughs> so there. Fancy
7: that, yeah. Go figure. It's a nice
0: space. I see a
7: couple of things. It's, it's uh, fantastic. It's t- <clears throat> and and here's the thing. It's like you never when I went, I did the show in Edinburgh this summer, and we were looking around. You know, I had a director, had a, a putative producer, and I hadn't fully signed on yet to do it. Anna Becker, who's producing the show obviously had the backer and we were still rooting around for where to do it in New York. Uh, not really, I didn't really know where is it uptown? Is it downtown? Is it East side? Is it West side? I didn't really know where. And the owner and the executive producer of 509059 were there in Edinburgh, uh, saw it, came up to me after the show and they said, we want it. Uh, which was this dream? It was just this unbelievable dream come true. I was like okay, I, and I didn't believe it at first for all the obvious reasons. It turned out to be true, and when I went there last week for the load in, it, it's it was perfect. It was one of those things where you like you can't plan it. But I looked around, I thought, you know what? Of all of the theaters, because I've been to a number of theaters, as we all have, mm-hmm. and you have dreams. You know, maybe it could be the Public or the Atlantic or wherever it is, uh, Broadway or off some great off Broadway house. It's just it's the right size and it's the right people coming into it, uh, into that space who get it. Well, they keep out the wrong people. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm here to tell you, as a matter of fact, they do. (laughs) Move along. Move along. (laughs) No, it's just kind of, you know, it's not, this is not, it's not for everyone. It's for almost everyone. Anybody out there, Right. this is for almost. It's refreshing to have somebody say, you know, this show is not. For, for everyone. everyone. The New York Times. <laughs> uh, uh, this show is not for everyone. It isn't. But it's for – you'd like it to be for everyone. And, and I am a, a firm believer in – You know, I have, I don't know, maybe four, between four and five million theories of humanity. And one of my theories of theatrical humanity is the groundling theory, which is that if you don't go through the groundlings uh, and get them, then you don't have a great show. You know, that's how you get to Queen Elizabeth. This is what Shakespeare had to do. This is what the Beatles had to do in the Star Club in Hamburg. They had to go through the drunken sailors, and until they got through the drunken sailors, they could not get, you know, to the rest of the world. So that having been said, there, uh, it's a show that there are certain turns of phrases and cultural references and stuff like that that are going to be lost on, uh, uh, let's say, one or two subgroups. <laughs> 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 but mostly it's a show for people and uh, and I love people. <laughs> it's a real
0: comfortable modern theater. You know I'm a, I'm a, I am a little bit of a snob when it comes to the you know the smaller the houses because I'm a tall guy and so many of the little theaters you know around the city are I think were built you know back you know and people years were shorter ago, everybody and was in the like water. four foot eight yeah. and I'm like oh, and I, you know but my back is killing me by the time I'm done sitting through the show and you know East 59 great comfortable seats nice enjoyable facility totally
7: it is totally civilized they've got drinks beforehand it's a nice it's a nice vibe and, uh, and the bathrooms are clean <laughs> 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 always an important criterion when choosing a theater All right. uh, James Brawley. I remember it because I got this now big
0: image of you with a bra over your sweater. Or you can go
7: back even farther, depending on whether this cultural reference is lost on you. Like Tawana. But no W, no E. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing on my forehead. (laughs) Life in a
0: Marital Institution is playing through March 16th. Yes. And uh, I guess it's... In real uh, easy to remember thing. It's www.lifeinamaritalinstitution.com for more information.
7: That's it. Six, uh, seven shows a week, Tuesday through Sunday. Reviewed in in today's Times, uh, Wednesday, February twenty seventh. I think we're on. And yeah,
0: is, this, is this a three-hour
7: Les Mis ordeal? It's 65 minutes without an intermission, <laughs> but it feels uh, – <laughs> it, its well, It's I, the subtitle of the show is 20 Years of Monogamy in One Terrifying Hour. So it's highly compressed, and it hurtles along. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, James Brawley, I thank you so much for coming in and chatting about the show. It's been yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Shikaboom Records has just released the cast recording for The Civilians Gone Missing. Written by the troupe The Civilians Gone Missing is a musical written about, uh, well, keys and things and whatever goes missing. Uh, The soundtrack is available at shikaboom.com or at Amazon or iTunes, and we're going to let you hear a track from that. This is Lost Horizon from the new cast recording, the off-Broadway production, Gone Missing.
8: I want to live in Shangri-La Without you Above the mountains Where the snow falls down I want to sail away And find lost cities Underneath the ocean floor I want to live in Zinedu Without you with Kublai Khan so I can smoke my pipe and dream of you I wanna sail away and learn what sin is in Sodom and Gomorrah Imaginary cities that lie under the ocean And did you say I seemed so far away? Am I okay? Why couldn't I stay? My boat is sinking into The white sargasso sea This is my lost horizon This is my lost horizon I'm gonna find Atlantis I wanna live in Babylon without you In hanging gardens where nobody talks the way you do I wanna sail away and find lost cities All full of Trojan horses Imaginary cities that lie under the ocean So far away, am I okay? Why couldn't I stay? My boat is sinking into the white sea This is my lost horizon. This is my lost horizon. This is my lost horizon.
1: On the boards.
0: Well, right now in New York is certainly a good time to catch the works of Tennessee Williams. There's been a lot of action with his plays recently. And we have uh, Night of the Iguana, which is also just opened off-off Broadway, and the director, Terry Schreiber, a long-time vet of uh, Tennessee Williams Works. Uh, this is his fourth full production. Is here in the studio, along with actor Derek Roche, who's playing Shannon. How are hey. you? How are you guys doing? Good. Good morning to you. All right. You want to introduce yourself so people can connect your voice with your name? Okay.
5: I'm Terry Schreiber. Hello, and I'm Derek Roche.
0: All right. So, the, I guess the very first thing here is um, with *Knight of the Iguana*. Is is to this is one of Tennessee Williams.
9: This is his last play, actually, isn't it? It's his last major success. Oh, he wrote quite a few plays afterwards, but this was the turning point.
0: So, tell us a little bit about *Knight of the Iguana*. Why you chose this to direct? What it what it's about? And
9: well. I, it's, it's my probably my favorite Tennessee Williams play, because I think um, it is so autobiographical in the writing of it. I think uh, he's embedded in all three of the central characters in the play, more so than in any other play he wrote. And it's a play that attracts me, has always attracted me, because of the tremendous compassion in it. And... Uh, You know, Tennessee's always writing about the misfits, but he's always (laughs) championing them at the same time. I've always quoted to the the cast that, uh, you know, I don't write about losers, I write about winners. It's life that makes them lose. And uh, I guess that theme has always attracted me in, in many ways with Tennessee. And the fact that I think he's the closest thing to Chekhov that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is my all-time favorite writer is Chekhov, but uh, he just never judges the people he's writing. He has just tremendous compassion for humanity and uh, uh, non-judgmental kind of values.
0: So, what what are some of the basic you know for the people who aren't familiar with this, sh- this show yet? What what's the basic idea around the story of Night of the Iguana?
9: I think it's seeking uh, dignity out of despair. Because I think everybody that hits that stage, and, and, and I don't mean to bury it in gloom and doom because it's not, but everybody is seeking a way out of the despair they're in when they hit this seedy kind of hotel in Puerto Vallarto in Mexico in, in 1940. It's just the beginning you know, of the war uh, in the sense that uh, London is being bombed already by the Germans. So we're just on the verge of World War II. We seem to be always on the verge of a war or in one, but this was the beginning of World War II, anyhow. Uh, So that, um, uh, I think, also, Tennessee has a... There's a great deal of humor in the play, and... um, But I I do think the central theme is about finding dignity out of despair. Now,
0: Derek, I mean, we all... Actors always love Tennessee Williams. You know, he seems to really (laughs) create stuff to really, you know, you know... Dig into oh absolutely and and, and so I'm kind of curious in, in creating the role of shannon what have been what are your, some of your favorite things about the role? what have been some of your challenges in in shaping this and,
5: uh well favorite thing and and you know going hand in hand with the challenge is the complexity of the role um you know Terry mentioned how the despair and yet there's so much humor in it, and it's funny like actually having an audience and going through this you know, laughs laughs come at the most, um, unusual moments sometimes, like right in the middle of, of my crack up, um, and it's wonderful, you know, it's like the audience is right there with you and it's just, it's, you're absolutely losing it, but there is still, you know, there's always the struggle, like Terry said, for, Redemption, you know, and and in my particular case, we worked a lot on on my, you know, trying to maintain my sense of pride and the idea of who I was, who I wanted to be, you know, who I am, and and what I'm still trying to aspire to, you know? So, just working on all of that, just the complexity and, and the relationships, phenomenal.
0: Now, Tennessee Williams usually delves into such big emotions and 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 goes such you know big places emotionally for the actors that I think a lot of amateur groups can have a tendency to take it almost a little bit melodramatic, hmm. um, which he, Tennessee Williams is not and is you know never intended. And I, but I'm curious to see as from a director actor standpoint, you know where you walk that line of you know w- you know to get to the reality of the emotions without without bringing it to a melodramatic point
9: well I think it's the same rule that applies to Chekhov you cannot act this material the minute you start acting forget it, it it's the same thing with Chekhov it's, uh, <laughs> it's always why I found British productions of Chekhov wanting because there's usually a lot of acting going on beautifully spoken but a lot of acting going on mm-hmm. and you've just got to live in those people because they're so close to the bone and I think it's the same thing with Williams uh, he's writing about real people, and they've got to be played that way, and you can't play up the melodramatic or just get up there and act, a storm, act up a storm. It's got, to, it's got to be very organically connected and truthful. And it's difficult material. It is very difficult material, especially iguana, because there's a lot of curves in it. Uh, uh, and it really is not a straight linear play. Uh, it doesn't begin with much exposition. It almost begins in crisis and goes from there so it but it's it's got to be very honestly done. yeah, I
5: agree a thousand percent <laughs> a thousand percent and and you know honestly, I don't know how to work any other way, you know I just I shot a feature last year that was supposed to be much more of a spoof and but I don't know how to do you know, I don't know how to get into a character except for to really organically find the the seed and let it let it grow you know sometimes it's outward in but it's 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 got to be you know for the majority inward out for me It was interesting, uh, several of our audience members on
9: Sunday, uh, I think both of them are probably close to 80, and the woman was saying to me, my husband has to drag me by the hair to a Tennessee Williams, because every time I see it, it's exactly what you said, Michael. Uh, It's filled with passion and recitation, she felt. But she said this play had just, production had just so much genuine passion in it that she said, I I was just riveted to it. So, it was a really compliment for the cast.
0: Now, this is actually—is this the fourth work of Tennessee Williams you've directed? Well, this is
9: my second shot at this one. I've done five Tennessee Williams, but this is my second shot. I did this 18 years ago uh, with a company, and I didn't have, you know, the open range of casting because it was a smaller company, and, uh, you know, I cast the best I could, but— I think casting is 85% of doing a play. And if you're wrong, boy, <laughs> don't be Svengali. Admit your mistake and replace. You Wait, know.
0: What, what's that look you're shooting Derek there? <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding, right. I've, I've heard know. rumors. Right, right, <laughs> the rumors. An understudy. rumors
9: abound. <laughs> He's going to be traded.
0: <laughs> so, so having directed so many Tennessee Williams, do you find it, it getting easier each time for you or...? or are you finding new things that you didn't see before oh. where is the canon helping you or hurting you in, in your
9: well finding new things I mean I feel that with you know I've read the biographies uh, because he's one of my favorite playwrights I've, I really gobbled up an awful lot about him uh, and his life and uh, you know his life is right there in his plays uh, it never becomes easier uh, and especially with Iguana because it's ve- it's very complicated and I suddenly suddenly, after all this time, like with the Germans that come into it, the four Germans, I suddenly realized how he must have been influenced by Fellini in a way with, you know, remember in a lot of those Fellini movies, you all of a sudden have a, a bunch of midget nuns come running through or something. The Germans serve the same purpose in this play. They're not midgets, but <laughs> it is that Germanic size and everything. And they're they're wonderful, genuine comic relief uh, that, that come through in this, even though they're Fire bombing London, uh, <laughs> you know, celebrating. But uh, I, I, I just—I it, it never occurred to me before that because it was—you know—he wrote this, I think, in the late 50s and early 60s, and it's—you know—when Fellini was really hitting on these shores as well. So it, it, you find things uh, each time. Uh, it's like doing Chekhov. Uh, you know, you can play it for four years and finally say, "Oh my God, that's what that line means." So hmm. that's
0: what the Russians did. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes, they did. And
9: wasn't that wonderful to, to be able to come to the theater and rehearse it for a year? Oh, what a luxury. <laughs> uh,
0: just to diverge for a second, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that there might be a similar story for, for Derek, but right uh, w- before we started the interview, you brought up an interesting story uh, of when you did some work in a uh, summer stock in oh. my home state.
9: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Nineteen fifty-nine Helena, Montana, in the historic old building, the old brewery theater that withstood the earthquake in Montana in nineteen thirty-six, and uh, it was the theater. And next to the theater was a block and a half of cat houses, right out of John Steinbeck. So frequently, somebody would knock on our door by mistake, and we had to steer them down the block. But it was a wide-open city uh, when I was there, and it was just—it was interesting. Uh, there was a lot of gamblers hanging out there, uh, and still the, are. The, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but the people in town with the money were the madams and the gamblers. Wow. And you'd see these madams come down the street about 2.30 in the afternoon with all the veils. It was right out of East of Eden, going to the bank. You know, and uh, the cowboys, I mean, you could go there and go upstairs if you wanted to or sit downstairs and gamble or drink because the bars all closed in Helena, too. Um, and the cowboys all felt that they could come in and leave their paycheck on Friday night and come back two years later and get it right back to the penny that they had left there. Hmm. So there were, there were very honest, legit places, doctor coming in to check up on the girls once a week, and, you know, it. I think it really saved a lot of crime on the street, and, you know, a lot of innocent people, uh, a lot of innocent young girls, you know, from guys that are drunk, and uh, just, you know... <laughs> <laughs> have to get off the cattle ranch, right? Somewhere. <laughs> we got Brokeback Mountain here. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it, it, was, it was quite an experience, though. But uh, the, I don't know if the theater's still running, but uh, I, I have a lot of memories about it. Yeah, I know I the old brewery's
0: there, but I don't I don't think yeah. there's been a show there for I don't know how long. Yeah. But I, I do know the building's still there.
9: Yeah. Wow. well the, Doris and Walter Marshall, I think she was named Woman of the Year in Reader's Digest, and uh, Walter ran a radio station in Helena they uh, put all their money into that theater.
0: There's Summerstock. So I am curious do you have any yeah. like interesting like uh, on your way to New York
5: Derek any Summerstock tales. You know, I um I have missed out on Summerstock thus far and Missed out
0: isn't the right uh, word I don't Well, think.
5: I mean, you know, <laughs> I did 10 years rite of that. passage or, yeah. or initiation, but um hmm <laughs> you didn't, you... I, I had one. I guess I had an initiation in New York. <laughs> My first show in New York, out of uh, Circle in the Square, kind of crashing back to reality. I, I got hired into an international theater company, out of Circle in the Square, and got to go to Italy. Oh, and um, I'd always had some kind of resistance to physical acting, and, and I'm not a huge fan of abstract, you know, theater, and I came back from Italy, and somebody encouraged me to go and audition for this this uh, production of Blood Wedding, and I thought, you know, I, recently, uh, frequently had been told, you know, do the most difficult, do the most difficult, and I was like, okay, what is it in me that's stopping me from doing this, and, all right, I'll go check it out, and I'll audition. Regrettably, I was cast in this part... <laughs> Of this production that was abstracting an abstract play <laughs> for no, you know, really concrete reason, mm-hmm. and um, for some reason the director decided to cast me, knowing, you know, my my grounding, my background, and like you know, working as an organic actor, and uh, so that was my summer stock, my my first production in New York. That was uh. Nightmare, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah,
0: as a saying, you know, like uh, Brecht isn't weird enough. <laughs> you know, let's let's do it an abstract. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
7: <laughs>
5: and and then ask questions
0: as yeah, an actor. Right. W- why am I doing this?
5: <laughs> that was fun.
0: Now, Terry, uh, you're, right. I mean, you're, you're producing the, this production of
9: Night yep. of the Iguana, right? Mm-hmm.
0: How long have you been producing? Have you is this your first production in New York, or have you done? other things that you've produced as well
9: uh we've been producing off off for 20 years okay Uh. i kind of guess so
0: this is a lot of times i bring up you know some of the difficulties of producing off off, you know broadway and Mm -hmm. in this thing but i'm kind of curious from your perspective having been doing it for a while has there been anything that you've sensed has really changed in in the challenges of producing from when you
9: started 20 years ago till now well, it, I mean, twenty years ago, it's the same as now. As far as the money is always another issue, you know, t- trying to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of the you know original kind of off-off Broadway movement in the '60s, and it was really exciting. Uh, and uh, suddenly, just burgeoned, you know, into all these theaters, and we had a wonderful organization called UBA, the Off-Off Broadway Alliance and uh, we really uh, came up with a whole kind of solidarity with it of helping each other and supporting each other and swapping mailing lists and things like that i think the difference now i think it's more isolated i don't think there's a a, a unity like we had back in the 60s and uh uh, i do think uh i i wish i mean i was fortunate enough to have two off-off-broadway plays that i did picked up and taken to broadway uh, you know when that's when producers really came down to see stuff off off and a lot of the plays going to Broadway came from off off uh, Craig Anderson the uh, Hudson Guild and certainly Marshall Mason uh, that I worked with for a couple of years at Circle Rep after I stopped producing at my theater uh, that's not happening anymore to a large degree I mean I think it happened a couple of things through the Fringe Festival right mm-hmm. Who that moved but it, it's just um, it's, it's Very, very difficult uh, unless you've got stars suddenly coming in to do a gig at your theater to get any producers to come down. I don't know why. I mean, everybody seems to always run to London. uh, And we've got to bring in the latest thing from London. And and I'm sure that even out in our regional theaters, there's good new plays being done that are just not being seen. I mean, look what what Osage County coming in. uh, You know, and and I think they're doing very well at the box office. But I just, uh, that's changed, uh, you know, from what it was in the 60s with all that excitement. Mm. And uh, it's the struggle to stay alive. I mean, it's expensive, And uh, you know, I've always
0: found it ironic how New York is such the center of theater, but this is probably one of the most expensive places to actually do theater with real estate and space and stuff. It's 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 this definite interesting dichotomy here, and rehearsals and storage and where
9: do you put the sets and moves? And this is
0: definitely not the most friendly.
9: No, (laughs) no, it's not. You really have to be committed to. Yeah, very, very committed, and there's, you know, the people I go back with, I mean, Chris Martin and people like that, I mean, they hung in there for, you know, 19, 20 years, you know, and battled it until they just got sick of, you know, uh, living in one shirt and, <laughs> and selling all the paintings that their parents had or anything else like that to survive, and believe me, we all did that. I know the one time I had to shut down for about seven years, I just, uh, i lost $20,000, and I just, uh, there was no way that I could keep the theater open we made a move and was not it was badly planned financially and we were in over our head and suddenly an audience that was coming to where i was on 3rd avenue this was when the east village was still kind of sleazy, Uh, and the audience that came from New Jersey or Long Island or Connecticut or places like that came down there once and just didn't want to come back to the area. By the time I left there ten years later, there were ten theaters in operation and restaurants opening all over the place. When I first came in, there was a restaurant across the street that was a a front for a numbers racket Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the Village Voice, I think, exposed, but uh, that was the only kind of restaurant even around on East 4th Street between 2nd and 3rd. It was still the Bowery down there. Uh, so I mean, and all that has changed. You know what the Lower East Side is now. But uh, it's—I I think it's tough for anybody to hang in there. And I think uh, you have got to, got to have a, a really business manager uh, that is a sound business. But this manager. is art. Yeah, Sorry. this is uh, yeah, but you need it. Um, <laughs> the theaters, even like the regional theaters, you've got to have that business manager that would not comp their mother into the theater. I mean, they've got a, that kind of killer attitude. And those are the theaters that have made it, even down to the regional theaters.
0: So mm-hmm. how have, the, have, the, have you noticed a shift in the demographic, like of the audiences but from the 60s in off-off Broadway through, you know, now, those, the off-off Broadway productions?
9: Yeah, we I find off-off... And probably even off-Broadway, you really get a theater-going audience compared to what you get on Broadway. These are people that want to see these plays again and saw the original productions. And I know our audience last Sunday uh, are people that have been with my theater since we were on East 4th Street. And a lot of them, you know, sitting there Sunday are in their 70s. But this is the kind of theater they want to go to at a reasonable price. And um, uh, it's a much more theater going audience than what you get on Broadway and not just something commercial or, you know, uh, butts and boobs and, you know, that kind of thing And most of the Broadway musicals. You know.
0: So, uh, Derek, back to Night of the Iguana. This is definitely really ensemble cast. And uh, I'm kind of curious who are mm-hmm. some of the other people that you're working with on, on stage
5: here? Oh, man. It's a phenomenal cast. And,. Um well, we got the, the two female leads, Janet and playing Maxine. Um, that relationship is really, really getting yeah. interesting and, and, and dynamic. Um, and I should interject. Uh, Janet left
9: um, Phantom of the oh, Opera yeah. to do the show that's how much she wanted to do it. She's... uh, She did it for the cash, right?
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. yes. Right, right. (laughs) I gotta call my manager.
5: Um, Yeah, but that's great. Yeah, talk about a sacrifice and commitment. Um, Denise Fiore is playing Hannah, and that's wonderful. Um oh I love I mean right down to the very last moment we have between us and it's not even dialogue it's just this, this shared moment that she says goodbye and like the energy she gives me on that every night gets mm. me and um and the the entire cast and, and we got Ian Dunn uh, playing Hank he's <laughs> hilarious <laughs> actually he's so funny I thought I um, blew my callback <laughs> because I came in and I was enjoying him so much he was so funny then I was like, oh, I just destroyed <laughs> destroyed that callback because of him. Um my mom, my two arch nemesis, um Jake Lotta, my <laughs> Peter Aguero and uh Pat Patterson playing Miss Fellows. Uh just great fun. And it's fun you know, I really feel like when they come on stage, that's it's the Jake Lotta scene and it's the Miss Fellows scene. I mean it's definitely Tennessee didn't didn't uh, shortchange anybody. Any of these characters, you got a uh, Guito and Armando playing the the Beach Boys, and uh, oh, f- talk about a major commitment. I mean, these guys come in and do everything, and I can throw anything at them, and they're right there for me, and, and just you know, real tangible connection. Uh, Alicia playing Charlotte. Right <laughs> Oh, it's just g- great. It's fantastic. And, of, of course, the Germans, as Terry mentioned earlier, they're hilarious. And actually uh, provide a, a wonderful catalyst for my, my crack up in the hammock.
0: <laughs> so, uh, how you I know Night of the Iguana opened uh, about a week ago, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. How, how long is this running?
5: To,
9: to March 30th, Thursday through Sunday.
0: So you've got a nice, healthy long run here yeah. to, to get into
9: yeah. it. Yeah. That's what's really nice about it, because a lot of the actors have not been in a long run. And it really is a wonderful training ground to sustain 24 performances and uh, they come in you know because we're off uh, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday you know they really come in on Thursday early and line through the play again and uh, uh, what well, the other thing that's nice about I think almost like summer stock days is when we do a production you know, because it's a school uh, you know we have professional actors there as well as everything from beginning to intermediate to advanced uh, but when you do a production it's one for all and all for one and everybody really pitches in so there's no exempt from crew work yeah. uh, i do bring in outside professional designers because i i don't want to be up all night for five weeks with somebody that's lighting their first show <laughs> uh, so uh, they work much faster because of that but uh, it uh, uh the rest of us are all doing it for free uh, And uh, it's just wonderful the cooperation because people have responsibilities every night and they come in to clean glasses and bottles and you know set up and strike and because we have to turn it over into a classroom a couple of times. There's
0: yeah, yeah, what theater theater is this taking place at?
9: It's at my studio. Okay. Uh, Yeah. and, uh,
0: and that's located where?
9: 151 West 26th, <laughs> on the 7th floor, between 7th and 6th <laughs> Avenue. Uh, so, and we've been there about 12 years now. Um, I was on East Force, right next to where Theater Works is now. And they bought out the building that, that I was in down there. It was Edward Elby's old playwright's lab. Cool. But uh, it, that's really one thing about the nicest about the unity with a production when everybody pitches in like that.
0: So, and uh, the website people can go to is www.tschreiber.com. Mm-hmm. All right. They can find information on getting tickets and such. Right.
5: And they can also check out uh, the same www.iguanacast.com. Mm-hmm. Or Theatermania um, handles our ticket reservations.
0: All
9: right. For no extra charge.
0: Well, great. Well, Terry Schreiber and Derek Rocher, I thank you so much for coming down and and talking about a a myriad of things, including your production of Night of the Iguana. Wish you the best of luck as your run continues. Thank you. Please come and see
9: it, Michael. Be my guest, okay?
1: top of the trades.
0: Broadway in Chicago and the producers of Jersey Boys are thrilled to announce that in response to overwhelming demand and critical acclaim, the record-breaking Jersey Boys will be taking up residence in the downtown theater district for a sit-down company of Jersey Boys to continue performances for as long as the public demands at the LaSalle Bank Theater. On Monday, March 3rd at 7pm, the Jewish Museum will present Shrek, from book to film to Broadway. The panel discussion will trace the odyssey of William Steig's Shrek character from the storybook page to his adaptation for film and the Broadway stage. Panelists will explore how Shrek's unique appeal with both adults and children inspires the creative project. The highly regarded writer, historian, and critic Leonard Marcus will examine William Steig's career as a children's book illustrator and author. Jeffrey Katzenberg, chief executive officer of DreamWorks Animation, will discuss bringing the character of Shrek to life on film. Chris Miller, director of the Shrek the Third film, will offer a movie director's take on the character of Shrek. Jason Moore, director of the forthcoming Shrek the Musical and Pulitzer Prize winner David lindsay Abair, book and lyrics for Shrek the Musical, will speak about the creative process that is driving the musical stage production. For two weeks only, Off-Broadway will offer tickets for only $20 20 minutes before the show. 20 at 20 is now a biannual celebration of New York's best shows in the tradition of Restaurant Week. Beginning Tuesday, February 25th and continuing through Sunday, March 9th, some Off-Broadway shows will offer seats still available 20 minutes before the curtain for only $20 when purchased at the box office for over 20 shows. Go to www.offbroadway.com for a complete list of participating shows, venues, and special offers. Or call toll-free 1-877-420-2820. Vital Theatre Company is pleased to announce that it will be transferring its production of A Tooth Fairy Tale to Off-Broadway's Soho Playhouse following the conclusion of its sold-out run at the Begin Gazelle Theatre ending Sunday, February 24th. A Tooth Fairy Tale features music and lyrics by Rick Hip Flores, book by Ben Winters, and direction by Linda Key. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. For all of your theatre news and theatre community, visit BroadwayWorld.com. Curtain Call. Is He Dead, the new comedy by master American novelist and satirist Mark Twain, adapted by David Ives and directed by two-time Tony Award winner Michael Blakemore, will close at Broadway's Lyceum Theater on March 9, 2008, following 105 performances and 13 previews. Dennis Letts, who is currently appearing as the patriarch gone missing from the highly acclaimed new play August Asage County, penned by his son Tracy Letts, has died of lung cancer on Friday, February twenty second. He was 73 years old. Dennis Letts originated the role of Beverly Weston in August Asajj County with both the Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago and the Broadway Company at the Imperial Theatre on Broadway. He was an Oklahoma actor and retired English university professor and appeared in more than 40 films and TV shows in his lifetime. And now you're going to hear me do something that I have never once done before in the show. It's unprecedented. I'm kind of giving a review here. Providence, uh, we talked with the actors last episode, just completed its run with MT Works. We interviewed two of the actors last episode, as I just mentioned, and I had a chance to catch the play. I'm making my first personal endorsement Mount this play. Playwright Cody Daigle shows complete mastery of his craft as he deftly weaves the past and present with crisp, witty dialogue that takes the audience on a roller coaster ride from laughter to tears and often within seconds. With incredibly well-written roles for four actors, this would be a fantastic show for a university or other group with a built-in audience. Okay, it's admittedly a hard sell, as anyone who heard the interview last week might guess. A play that deals with two people coping with death doesn't sound like a thrilling, gripping night at the theater, but it is. Take a chance with this play. This play is a perfect example of why I started Broadway Bullet. I wanted to be able to expose works that might fall through the cracks to an audience outside of New York. This one is a gem. Providence isn't yet published by a House, but if you would like information on how to obtain a copy for Perusal, please email info at mtworks.org. Well, that wraps up Volume 203 of Broadway Bullet. Marty Cooper should be back on the positive side next episode, which will be the second Thursday in March. We're the second and fourth Thursday of every month. Thanks, everybody, for checking it out. and. Go check out some of the shows that you just heard about, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. was just
8: so ominous. Like, oh. Wow, this could really happen.
6: We're starved, so should an audition come up?
2: We are so ready and raring.
6: So, Jake Cops says my name, and I'm in the can. Actually, the barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just go vulture,
1: boggler. So it didn't take much, though. When he um, proposed, I said yes.
0: It's fun to know that those lines will stay in
6: the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment.
0: things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.